Good morning and welcome to our morning service. I hope you've enjoyed the worship that John and Liz have just um, just overseen for us. It was great to have them leading us this morning. So thank you to, to John and Liz. And I just want to add my welcome, really. It's always good to have new people join us, but it's also good to have regular people join us to worship the living God. And that's what we've been doing for the past 20 minutes, half an hour, however long it's been. It doesn't matter. We've been in worship and that is our highest calling. So it's good to be here this morning. It's good to have the opportunity to to worship, to praise God and to explore his word and what it has to say to us today. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a passage which um, can be found in the book of Two Kings, right at the start of the fifth chapter. And it's a passage that for a lot of people will be quite familiar. We spoke about it briefly in in services um, earlier in the year, before lockdown, if you can remember back that far. And it's a passage which teaches us an awful lot about the way that God works through us. And what we're going to be looking at today is the theme of power and what we learn about power in the story that we're going to read shortly. This is a two-part series. Next week we're going to be doing the second half of Two Kings chapter 5 and next week we'll be focusing on money and wealth. Um, So we're going to start with power this week and then next week we're going to be looking at money and what what this chapter says about that. Without any further ado, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to listen to Andy Gowland reading the first part of 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this week. Whatever we've been through in the past week, Lord, thank you that you have been present with us. Thank you that in all the conversations that we've had, in all the the actions that we've performed, in all the thoughts that have passed through our mind, you have been in control. Father, forgive us for the times that we've got it wrong, for the times that we've failed to act in a way that honours you or to speak in a way that, that, that glorifies you. But Father, we know that every time we come before you with sincere hearts, seeking your forgiveness, you give us an assurance of forgiveness. Every time we fail, you pick us up. Every time we let you down, you give us another chance. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you because we all get things wrong from time to time. But as we come here this morning, Lord, we want to be reminded that that we come here to worship a God who loves his people so much that he sent his son to die for us. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you've given us this creation to enjoy You've given us these lives to live to their fullness. You've given us our friends and our family, our homes, our jobs. You've given us everything that we have. And Father, we know that sometimes we take those things for granted, but this morning, Lord, we want to say to you once again, thank you. Thank you for the lives that you've given us, for what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you can bring us closer to you. Help us to deepen our understanding of you and give us the ability to enjoy the relationship that we can have individually with our Heavenly Father. So be with us, we pray, Lord, in your spirit this morning. Fill our homes, fill our hearts and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Our reading today is taken from 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And it's titled, Naaman Healed of Leprosy. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to, to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horse and his chariot and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elisha sent a message to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call out the name of the Lord his God, wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Many years ago, I spent three weeks in the French Pyrenees, and I was there to do my Gold Duke of Edinburgh's award. It was a brilliant summer. It was hot, it was a World Cup summer, and it was a great time to be out in the hills doing an expedition. But you see, when you do these expeditions, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it before you start. For instance, you have to research the, the route you're going to be taking. You have to make sure that you fill in route cards and plot out on a map exactly how far you're going to be travelling, where your campsites are going to be, where your water stops are going to be, how far you're going to be doing each day, and how high you're going to be climbing as well, which is an important factor when you're in a great big mountain range. A lot of preparation goes into what you're going to be carrying as well. You want to be carrying as little as possible, but also you want to make sure that you've got enough food, that you've got enough water bottles, that you've got enough clothing, that your shelter is adequate, that you've got enough fuel for your stove and that you don't forget the stove itself, as I've known people to do. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into the packing as well. But one of the things that you have to do as well is have a purpose to your expedition. 
And some people study the flora and fauna, some people study the lives of, of other people that have trodden those paths before. But what we did, my team and I that summer, we spent months researching escape routes that had been used to get Allied aircrew across the French Pyrenees and into Spain in the Second World War. It was a fascinating expedition. Some of the routes that we followed have since been, been mapped out and you can quite easily find them when you're in the Pyrenees. But there are other routes which you sort of, you have to work quite hard to find them. And as we were researching, we identified certain references to rock faces or, um, or streams or springs in the mountain which we would try and find and identify and get as close as we as sure as we possibly could be to making sure that we had found the actual place that was referenced in the account that had been written by the French resistance or the Allied air crew that had travelled through those time those areas back in the um, early 1940s. It was a fascinating time. It was a fascinating place to be. We found caves and tiny little shepherd's huts that had been used to, um, to house supplies or injured aircrew to allow them time to recover before they set off into the mountain peaks. We found tiny little paths which looked no more than sheep tracks, which scaled the, the edges of sheer drops. And we, we began to appreciate the bravery of the people who had travelled these routes. It was quite a humbling experience as well. There were certain places where we realised that an escape route came to an end because we'd read in, in accounts that a member of the resistance was leading a couple of aircrew and they had been ambushed by a hunter group, by a group from the German army sent out to find these people and they'd been executed on the spot. And there were times in the expedition where we all fell silent because we realised that we were standing on the site where an atrocity had been performed. Now you're probably wondering why I'm sharing this, having just heard the account of, of Naaman's healing in, in Two Kings. You see, the thing that really struck me and that has stuck with me ever since I read those stories is the amount of secrecy involved, the secrecy and the bravery of the French resistance. When a pilot was shot down over occupied France, either he was captured or he died or he was lucky enough to be taken in by the resistance. And the resistance sort of worked in cell groups across the country and there was a need for utmost secrecy. Every group who took in a pilot would assess their needs, would make sure that they were looked after, any injuries were, were given first aid treatment, and then, and then arrangements were made for them to travel. Sometimes this took months. For instance, if a pilot had a broken leg, it would take many, many months for it to heal up to the point where they were safe to travel. Other times it was imperative that the pilot was moved on as quickly as possible because there were groups of, of, of the SS out hunting for him. Because of the way that the resistance was organised in these various cell groups, as Allied aircrew were passed from one group to another, to another, to another, it formed a chain. And at no point did the group who first found the pilot know what happened to him once they passed him on. And at no point did the group who were fifth or sixth in the chain of, of receiving him as he travelled down through occupied France know quite 
where he'd come from or who the other groups were that had been involved in getting him this far. Those groups never knew whether their willingness to risk their lives and the lives of their friends and their families actually achieved anything. They never knew whether those aircrew actually made it to the end of the chain and onto the boat or the aircraft that was going to be taking them back to England so they could carry on fighting in the war. They risked everything, but they never knew the outcome and whether or not it was worth it. In this account that we've just heard read from 2 Kings chapter 5, we read about the story of Naaman. Naaman, the commander of armies. Naaman, the great warrior. Naaman, the the powerful leader. Naaman, the one who was answerable only to his king, who commanded an army, who had great strength, great resource at his disposal. He's a very, very powerful man. But you see, he's not the most important character in this story. Because in this story there's almost a series of cell groups that get Naaman from the start of the story where he's facing a slow painful death carrying with it all the suffering and and the 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 social outcast status that would come with being a leper to the end of the story where he's healed and we're told that his skin was restored to become clean like that of a young boy. To get him through this this journey, there are loads and loads of different groups, different people that help him. To start with, we have the young girl. Now, this has been preached on before many times, the fact that this young girl is remarkable She's only mentioned in a couple of verses in this passage. We never hear of her before. We never hear of her again. We have no idea what happened to this girl. But what we do know is that she is an absolutely vital cog in the machine that brings Naaman to acknowledge God. She is the victim of abduction. Naaman had sanctioned raiding parties to go out from Aram, his, his country, into Israel, to go across the border, to attack towns and small holdings, to capture crops and livestock and slaves. And sure enough, this, this young girl would have been taken. We don't know what sort of torture and unpleasantries that she may have been subject to. We don't know how old she was. But what we do know is that she had been taken from her home by a raiding party. She'd been taken, captured as a slave. She had never seen her family again, probably never would, and she is serving Naaman's wife. Now Naaman's wife was, of course, a powerful woman because she was married to Naaman, and yet she was still a woman. And in the society of those days, the cultural values that were held, that meant that she wasn't a particularly powerful individual. Her power came through her marriage, not through her own personal status. You see, this, the servant girl takes a massive risk. She speaks out. She gives advice. 
She suggests that she has knowledge and power and understanding that, that Naaman doesn't have. She knew that she could have been put to death by speaking out. She takes a massive risk. She served Naaman's wife, we're told. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. In other words, if only he turned to my God, your gods can't do this. Your gods, your gods don't have any power. They can't achieve anything. If only he'd go and see my God. Now, what's remarkable, remarkable about this is two things. Firstly, she had the courage to speak out. She had the courage to claim that God is sovereign, that God rules over all. She didn't point to her own status and say, well, clearly my God's not as powerful as your God because you've taken me a slave. She understood that actually God doesn't work like that. God's put people in specific situations to do his work. And sometimes, from an earthly perspective, that means that God puts us in positions where life is tough where things don't go for us, in fact things go against us, where we can look around and feel really sorry for ourselves if we don't perceive that God has put us there for a reason. This girl shows tremendous faith. You see, not only does she take a massive personal risk, but it's also remarkable that she hasn't lost her faith. She's lost her family, she's lost her home, she's lost her, her identity, She's lost her future, her prospects. She might even have lost a few teeth. Who knows, in beatings. But what she hasn't lost is her faith in God. She still believes that God has the power to heal Naaman. I don't know about you, but if I was in her position, I don't know how I'd respond. I think there'd be a temptation to focus on self. There'd be a temptation to focus on, on where is God? Woe is me. Why has he done this to me? And of course, as soon as we start asking those questions, we begin to doubt God's power. We begin to question God's authority. God is no longer sovereign to us. And if we go down that route, then of course, if we're questioning God's authority in our own lives, God's power to change our own lives, then how are we going to believe that he can have that effect on anybody else's? So this slave girl, this young Israelite girl, has tremendous faith. Naaman's wife also is a remarkable part of the chain that helps Naaman. She listens to her servant girl, this Israelite slave. She listens to her. Now, of course, she would have been desperate to see her husband healed. She would have desperately wanted to believe that, that there was a way to cure the uncurable. This, this curse of leprosy, this horrible disease that was only ever going to end one way. She wanted desperately to believe that there was going to be a way out. She's so desperate that she's even prepared to cling to the thread of hope offered by a mere slave. And so she herself takes a risk. She goes to Naaman and she tells him what the slave girl has said to her. Naaman could have turned around and said, don't be so stupid. 
She's a, she's a slave girl. Are you telling me that our gods aren't powerful? Where's your faith in our gods? Thankfully, he doesn't do this. He trusts his wife. He sees in his wife maybe her desperation to see her husband healed. Maybe he realises that she is acting out of love. He could have just patronised her, said thank you, I'll give it some thought, and then done nothing with it. But he doesn't do that. He acts upon it. He goes and sees his king. And he says, look, you know my wife, um, well she's got a slave girl that we captured in a raiding party. And she said that if I was to go and see a prophet in Israel, then through him, her God will heal me. Again, the king of Aram plays a part. You see, he's, he's all powerful. He could have said to Naaman, you lack faith in our gods. You lack faith in, in your power. You've got leprosy. You've got some sort of a curse on you. You're, you're banished. You're sacked. I'm going to appoint someone in your place. Could have done any of these things. Naaman was taking a risk going to his king, but his king recognises that Naaman has only one opportunity here. He has only one option. There is no other way that there is going to be a cure. There is no other way that Naaman can avoid decaying until he reaches death. And so the king, he gives Naaman a letter to take to the king of Israel. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because Naaman turns up to the king of Israel with this letter and the king of Israel doesn't react well. In fact, he throws an absolute paddy. He throws an absolute tantrum. We see him tearing his robes and shouting and screaming and stamping around his palace saying, what am I supposed to do with this? This pretty much, be a, this pretty much could be a declaration of war. I haven't got the power to cure a leprosy. The king of Aram has just sent the commander of his army to come and ask for, for healing. What am I supposed to do with that? All I can do here is fail. Oh my goodness. Notice the difference between the king's reaction and the reaction of Elisha. The king is not a non-anxious presence. The king is not calm. The king does not read the letter and say, this is an opportunity for my God to show his power. You see, the king of Israel actually doesn't demonstrate very much faith. He's throwing an absolute tantrum until Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes and sends him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. How do we react when we find ourselves in a seemingly impossible situation? When we think, I'm up to here. I've got so much work to do. I've got so much, so many deadlines. I'm under so much pressure. And now someone else has thrown something else my way. Another impossible job with an impossible deadline. I can't do this. What am I going to do? It's very easy for us to get sucked in to moaning about all the work that we have to do. And forget that actually... We are working for our God. That actually our God 
is the one who has the power in our lives. Our God will get us through whatever situations we find ourselves in. Our God is in control. It's so easy for us to, to do exactly what the King of Israel does here. To throw an absolute tantrum rather than do what Elisha does and say, give it to me. You see, Elisha is, is the non-anxious presence in this story. He writes to his king and says, pass it my way. Don't worry about it. But of course, Elisha shows us a very good example of social distancing. <laughs> You're probably sick of that phrase by now, but we see it, don't we? A leper turns up at his gate. Does he go out and lay hands on a leper? No. Does he go out and pray for the leper? No. Does he go out and, and talk to the leper? No. He stays in his palace. He keeps the leper at his gate. Elisha sends a messenger to pass on instruction, which infuriates Naaman. The messenger is another part of the chain. The messenger goes from Elisha out to Elisha's gate. It may seem like a very short, insignificant journey, but he could have said, Sire, no, this man's got leprosy. I'm, I'm going nowhere near him. You see, it's another tiny little character in the Bible that we, we gloss over, we don't pick out, but actually God uses the insignificant, the ones in this story with earthly power. Naaman has got a disease that's going to kill him. The king of, of Aram, he can't do anything about it. They've got tremendous earthly power. Between them, they run a kingdom and its army. And then, of course, the king of Israel, he's infuriated He's got so much power. He's so used to being able to solve problems and, and whether it's to, to build something or buy something or grow something. He can do it because he's got the resources. And suddenly someone has the audacity to put in front of him an impossible challenge. Does he turn to his God? No. He looks at himself and he's angry that there's a problem that he can't solve. That's the reaction of the powerful people in this story. But actually, when we look at those who don't have power, the servant girl, Naaman's wife, Elisha himself, Elisha's servant, we begin to see the topsy-turvy arrangement of power in the kingdom of God. We begin to see the way that God blesses the meek, that God uses the powerless and gives them power. We begin to see the way that when we are empty of our own grandeur, when we're empty of our own ambition and our own self-righteousness, that's when God can fill us with his Holy Spirit and use us to achieve his purposes on earth. So the messenger goes out and meets Naaman at the gate. And he says... Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And here, of course, we see the second tantrum in this story. And funnily enough, it comes from someone else who has got massive earthly power. It comes from Naaman himself. He's travelled all this way. He's listened to his wife. He would have felt slightly patronised by that. I'm sure some of us can identify. She'd listened to a servant girl. No one would do that. He'd gone and petitioned his king. He'd been sent to the king of Israel. He'd then be sent to this prophet. 
and the prophet hadn't even bothered to come out and see him. He had put a huge amount of work into travelling all that way and the prophet couldn't even be bothered to come and look at him. And he gets told, go down to that filthy stinking river and dip yourself in there seven times. Now he must have thought it was some sort of a practical joke. He must have thought that the Israelites were going to be, going to be laughing at him. He's absolutely furious. In fact, he says, I thought he'd surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So off he went in a rage. He says, I, this is Israel. It's inferior to my country. The rivers here are filthy compared to the pure ones that I come from. Why on earth should I go and wash myself here? What a ridiculous instruction. And he actually gets angry. This is such a simple instruction. And what's interesting about this, of course, is the fact that we can fall into exactly the same trap. Sometimes we can find ourselves thinking, there's a crisis going on. There's, there's an emergency. I need to respond. I need to do something about this, but I can't. There are people dying of starvation in the world and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I read my Bible, it says I should feed the hungry. But I can't do anything about it. I can't make it, I can send a food parcel, I can make a donation, but I feel so helpless. I feel like I should be getting on a plane and flying out to this war zone and putting my own life at risk and, and diving through hoops of fire and, and saving the world. I want to be the, the Indiana Jones figure because I want to be fighting for God. I want to be doing what, what David did on a battlefield and, and many others like him. I want to be like Jonathan going up to a Philistine stronghold with, with one sword and taking them on. I want to be trusting in God and giving everything I can and showing God how devoted I am. But God doesn't need us to do that. Sometimes he might call someone to do that. But that is not the normal operating procedure of a Christian. I read once that one of the most frustrating things about being a Christian is that we want to give everything all at once. We want to sacrifice everything we've got to show God how much we are devoted to him. But all he asks for is a couple of pence each day. He just wants a, a tiny, tiny fraction of us each day. But he wants that every day. And so part of the frustration of following God can be that it's not a one-off payment. It's a continual investment. It's a drip feed. God doesn't want us to give him everything. He wants us to enjoy what he's given us. But he does want us to be continually giving a small part of ourselves. And for Naaman in this story, that small part was obedience. God wants to see if Naaman will obediently follow the instruction given to him by the prophet Elisha. But if Naaman, this all-powerful general of an army, was left to his own devices, he would have thrown his toys out of the pram, got on his horse and gone home. But 
Naaman's servants. We're not told who they are. We're not told how many there were. We're told nothing about them. But again, Naaman's servants, they have no power, no authority. They take a great risk. They see him throwing a, throwing a tantrum and they go and tell him he's wrong. He could have put them to death. He could have, he, he could have put them in prison. But God uses them because they go up to him and say, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, if he told you to go and face down a whole army with nothing but one sword, or if he had told you to go and wrestle a crocodile in the Jordan, I don't know if you get crocodiles in the Jordan, but stay with me on this, or if he'd, if he'd challenged you to go and um, feed a whole country and to, to, to go and win battles, to provide resources, you would have done it. You would have taken on that challenge. That would have satisfied your, your masculinity. How much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? In other words, you would have done the really hard challenge. You would have taken that on. So what's the problem? It's an easy challenge. Just do it. What have you got to lose? So Naaman eventually does show obedience to God. He does listen to his servants and he does see the wisdom in their words. And he does go down to the banks of the Jordan into the water and dip himself in the water seven times. And that's where we read that his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. You see what's happened there? Suddenly, having experienced the, the healing miracle that God has performed, having recognised that by showing obedience to the instruction of God that was given to him through the messenger of the prophet of God, through the, if, if a prophet is a servant of God, then the messenger was the servant's servant. Naaman, once he'd humbled himself and done what the servant's servant had told him to do, then he recognised the power of God. He had to empty himself of his own self-righteousness before he could be filled with the Spirit of God. And his skin is washed clean. And he says to Naaman, please now accept a gift from your servant. The general has become the servant. The warrior has humbled himself and describes himself as Elisha's servant. You see, for me, I love this story. I love this story because there are so many minor characters in it that we can just gloss over. They're not named. We know very little about them. There's just the odd passing reference. They never appear again in scripture. But if any one of them had 
refused to carry out their part in this story, no matter how small it may have seemed, then Naaman would never have experienced God. Naaman would never have gone back to his own land with the name of God on his lips, the God of Israel. Every single one of them played a really important part, often at great personal risk. Just like the cells in occupied France of resistance fighters who risked everything and many of them lost everything. Many of them, their their families were killed, they were killed, their friends were killed, their houses were burnt down. They lost everything. They took great personal risk to play their small part in the escape route, to get those Allied aircrew through France, through the Pyrenees, through Spain and out back to England so they could fly again and carry on fighting for the greater good. Because each one of those members of the resistance, no matter how small a part they felt they played in the great big chain of events that were required to get the aircrew from from crash site back to the runway, no matter how small their part was, they believed that it was the right thing to do. For you and I today, we can sometimes feel overawed by the problems of the world. We can sometimes feel that we we spend Sundays talking about a God of grace and mercy and power and authority and God is sovereign over all, rules the world. And then we can look around and think, really? Well, how are we in the state we're in? How is it then that a germ can spread and cause a pandemic and kill hundreds of thousands of people across the world? How is it then that evil dictators can come to power and and be responsible for the slaughter of thousands of people? How is it then that there's such an imbalance in the distribution of wealth across the world? How is it then that, that there are still civil wars and famines and droughts and cruelty and abuse? How is it that that mental health in the United Kingdom at the moment is at an all-time low? How? And sometimes that can cause us to question God. Sometimes that can lead us into a very dark place, a place where we question our very faith, the very fabric of our belief. But when we read a story like this, we're reminded that God is in control. The servant girl had absolutely no idea what was going to happen when she spoke to Naaman's wife. Naaman's wife had absolutely no idea what was going to happen when she passed on that advice to her husband. Naaman had no idea when he spoke to his king. His king had no idea when he sent Naaman to the king of Israel. The king of Israel had no idea. Elisha may have had an inkling because he had such strong faith, but the servant that he sent had no idea. Naaman's servants who had to drag him back to the banks of the Jordan and and, and implore him to plunge into the water... They had no idea. We too can look around ourselves at the moment and think, I've got no idea how God is working, how God is using me in his master plan. But be assured of this, he is. And often it's in the tiny, tiny little roles that we play in people's lives. During lockdown, my son Timothy decided he wanted to write a word search. A word search full of happy words, and some of you may have received one. But you see, when he wrote the first one, 
he wanted to send it to someone who he thought might be feeling a bit sad and lonely because she was shut up in a tiny castle in Windsor. He wanted to send it to the Queen. And so he, he wrote this word search and he, he copied it and made copies for many, many people and sent them out. And we had a table outside our house and dog walkers and families who walked past would take one and go home and do it. But the original was done for the Queen. And he posted it with a letter. And this week we got a response and it was from one of the ladies in waiting. And it was a lovely letter thanking Timothy for writing um, for doing the word search and sending his letter, um, passing on the Queen's thanks. And it was, it's a real treasure to keep. But then news agencies heard about it. And suddenly in the past day, we've been inundated with phone calls from different newspapers and news agencies. If you search for Timothy online, you find that um, everything from the Belfast Telegraph to the Scottish farmer are suddenly featuring his story. And when we questioned one of the news agencies who phoned us, we said, how come people are interested in this? And the lady replied, people love good news stories. People love stories that make them smile, that bring joy to them. And this is one of those stories. You see, this is just a word search. It's a tiny gesture made by a seven-year-old child. And yet, suddenly, the people whose job it is to spread the news have recognised that people want to hear good news. People want to hear good news, no matter how small a gesture it may be. It brings joy to people, it makes people smile, it brings a warmth to people's lives. In church, we often talk about sharing the good news. We often talk about the gospel and how the word itself means good news. But sometimes as a Christian, we spread good news not by forcing the gospel down someone's throat, but instead living out this example. So as lockdown restrictions have been, have been relaxed, and as we're able to go out and do more things and get back to work and establish some sort of a routine, let's be conscious of the world around us. Let's look at our communities. Let's look at the, the people that we work with or the people that we live with, the people that we mix with socially. Let's look at our friends and our families and our neighbours and identify the needs. Identify what, what their leprosy is, what their incurable problem is. And let's ask God if there is any small part or big part that he wants us to play in their story. You see the story of Naaman isn't about Naaman only, it's about a whole host of characters that get Naaman from the point of crashing and burning to the point of being released to fly back to his own country with the name of the God of Israel on his lips. We are like the resistance fighters that God uses in that chain to speak into the lives of people, to bring hope and joy, to offer, offer good news to those that we meet. That's what God wants us to do. When we take the gospel to people, we're spreading good news. So just to finish with, we need to be clear what good news is. When we when we share something that's good news, let's make sure that it's going to be good news to the recipient. You see, some of my best news this week has been that, that 
a test match has started, cricket's back on, great, I'm over the moon, except for the fact that England are being beaten, but we won't go there. But I know that there are an awful lot of people who couldn't care less about that. So if I share that as good news, they're going to think, yeah, Tom, I don't really care. In the same way, there's an awful lot of people that if I go and say, Jesus died for you so that you can have a relationship with your heavenly father and that you can join him for eternity when your earthly life is over, that's really good news. And for a lot of people, they're going to respond saying, yeah, Tom, I don't really care about that. So let's think creatively. Let's try and meet people where they're at. Let's try and work out what their needs are and then address their needs as best we can, playing the role that God wants us to play in their lives, helping them, serving them, showing love and grace and mercy to them, bringing them peace, not throwing our toys out the pram when we hit a difficult spot, but instead remember that our faith is in the God of all things, the hope of the world, the hope of the nations. Let's make sure that when we go out this coming week and in the weeks and months to come, we remember that God can't fill us up if we are already full of our own self-image, our own self-righteousness, our own ideas of grandeur, delusions you might say. But God can fill us up if we go out into the world humble and prepared to do his work then he will use us and he will use us to achieve more than we can imagine. So be blessed this week, be confident and be faithful. Whatever conversations you have, make sure that that you are the non-anxious presence. Make sure that you have confidence in your God. Don't be ashamed of your faith, but instead be proud and be willing to serve others in the name of our God.